It is the last day of summer. Somehow the autumn brings renewed thoughts of financial planning for many people. Open season for the federal health benefits plans, that's approaching also. For some fresh thinking, I spoke with a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland, Tiago Glieger. His firm specializes in federal employees. We talked about what Fed should be thinking about financially as 2024 draws closer, starting with the question of traditional or Roth plan for your thrift savings plan. The name of the game is figuring out when are you going to owe the least amount of taxes. You know, when you think about the taxes that you're going to have to pay, you owe the taxes at some point. And so if you think about what your tax bracket is right now, relative to what your tax bracket might be later in life, then you can start to determine, okay, does it make sense to pay the taxes right now, use the Roth, compared to later? Because we have things like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that will be sunsetting, which means that it's going to go back to the old tax rates here in a couple of years unless there's no law changes. And so if that happens, then federal employees can expect to see tax rates bump up by 3 or 4%. Right. And so if you consider what rates will be three or four percent from now compared to now, you might think, okay, well, maybe we do a Roth contribution, a Roth conversion. Uh, You can't convert within the TSP, but you can switch to Roth contributions. And so you get to save yourself a couple of points in taxes here. And then that money gets to grow totally tax free for the rest of your life. Right. To clarify, the Roth option you pay with after tax dollars so that they are not taxed upon withdrawal. Mm -hmm. That's right. All right. And there's a complication to this calculus, though, because the standard model is you retire, your income goes down, your taxes are lower. Great. That's why you have an IRA, non-Roth. But the reality is a lot of people and a lot of feds uh, work after they retire from the federal government. In fact, at the higher levels, they go on to sometimes executive positions at contractors and companies where they continue to ply their expertise. And that can last another 10, 12, 15 years after the official Fed retirement, and then you could be in a situation where you're still working, yet you have reached the required minimum distribution stage. So how the heck do you calculate all that in terms of the least tax liability? Yeah, that's that's really tough because if you're expecting to be earning through your retirement years and still right up to your RMD or minimum distribution, then you could be sitting on a tax bomb, especially if your whole life you've contributed to traditional TSP or pre-tax TSP. And so you want to make use of possibly these years that we have slightly reduced rates right now, um, unless Congress changes the tax laws coming up here in a couple of years. Now, the key with earning beyond your federal service is understanding where your tax rates will be in the future relative to where they are now. So you can do some income projecting. If you are maxed out at the you know, 183, 500, whatever the GS-15 top max is right now, what do you think you're going to be earning if you're not working in federal service? You might be earning more, you might be earning less, depending on how much time you want to commit to that. And so try and project out your income and think about where will your, your income be. If you have your minimum distributions from the retirement accounts, those also stack on top of your income. And so you get to see where your bracket falls and determine how much taxes are you paying then, right, compared to what you would be paying now if you were to just do the Roth contribution right now or if you were to do a Roth conversion. And can you get the calculus close enough, say, with your own financial or tax advisor such that you might opt for voluntarily lower income because you might net more? And you'll have more take-home for that, you know, pen collection you want to keep building when you're in retirement. 
because of that tax effect. Yeah, for sure. Because if you don't pay me so much, I don't want to hit the tax bomb. Exactly, exactly. And we see that with a lot of retirees. They do an analysis of what it would look like if they didn't do Roth at all, then they're maxed out on their minimum distributions versus if they just pay a little bit of taxes along the way. And if you can get yourself into lower brackets in retirement, think about retirement is as long as your career for most people. And so if you can be in low tax brackets for as long as you were working in retirement, then you're paying the least amount of taxes compared to if you were to just go ahead and pay the taxes when you were actually working. And so that's something that a lot of people can do in A scenario and a B scenario to try and figure out what would be the overall estimated tax liability throughout my whole life if I did a Roth versus if I didn't. And sometimes we'll find people take a couple of years off between federal service and post-retirement work. They, those are years that their income has gone way down, right? And so you might consider doing accelerated Roth conversions, fill up those tax brackets up until whatever bracket you're comfortable, maybe the 22, right? Because that might prevent you from being in the 28 or higher later, depending on how big your retirement account is. Which also shows, you know, how tax policy affects so much in the economy and just, you know, everybody's worried about a recession, yes or no, at the moment. Imagine what happens if tax rates shoot up 3 or 4% in a couple of years. That's right. You know, say what you want, but that could really have a recessionary impact on yep. the economy. Well, if my retirement lasts as long as my career, that means I'll live to 117. <laughs> don't think that's going to happen. I don't really want it to happen, to be right. honest. I'm the world's first 117-year-old. And speaking of the economy, you know, it's rocky right now in terms of the gyrations of the market, even though the fundamentals look good in some sense, they don't look so good in other. Let's talk about what you call the G-fund trap, which is just that idea of defaulting to the safest fund because you don't know what's going to happen can really not be such a great strategy. Yeah, especially when we think long-term. Inflation is the silent retirement killer. And so when we look at what the impact of inflation is over 10, 20, 30 years, if you're not, if your investments are not outpacing that inflation plus the spending that you're doing, you could be in a situation where you're running out of money before you run out of time. And so the G fund struggles in outpacing inflation because it's not designed to do so. The G fund is designed to be principal protection, and it does give you some interest rate along the way. But when markets become volatile, investors have this visceral response of protecting what they've worked really hard for. And they get into this emotional trap of, of trying to protect as it's going down. But the, the issue and why it's a trap is when are people actually ready to get back into the markets, right? If we think about the flows of the different TSP funds earlier this year. The TSP gave us information, uh, you know, I think it was around April, May, June, billions of dollars were flowing back into the CSNI fund from the G fund. And the reason billions of dollars were moving back are because federal employees were seeing, hey, they're paying well this year. But the challenge is you're jumping on a moving train, right? The, the markets have already begun to recover. And so it's taking you a little bit of time mm -hmm. to get comfortable with the markets again to get back in. And the chances are is you already missed a big part of that recovery. And that's why it's a, such a trap because you're scared to get back in because you were just punished for being in the CS&I fund in the markets. But then by the time you're ready to get back in, you've likely already missed a big chunk of that return already. And that's where federal employees... Uh, can trade themselves into oblivion sometimes. Yeah, you're selling low and buying high. Essentially. Timing, chasing, never a good idea for the average single investor, is it? Yeah, and in fact, I think 
consistently timing the markets correctly, I don't believe is very possible. You know, I think it's really hard to do that over an entire lifetime. There may be periods of times here and there where you can get the timing right, and that's great, you know. But I think in the long run, it's really hard to do that. Like winning in Las Vegas. That's right. People never tell you how lousy they did. They just tell you when they hit that one machine. (laughs) We're speaking with Tiago Glieger. He's a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland. And we are on the doorstep of open season, and there's a lot of changes because of OPM rules, for example, the coming infertility benefit payments that will be available to, I guess, those on the childbearing age feds. This is a time when you also got to do some real hard thinking rather than default to just sticking with the plan you might have now. Yeah, I think that a lot of federal employees are on cruise control during open season. They're happy with their plan because they didn't have any issues with their plan. But I think what they don't realize is they could be saving money by making sure that they have the right benefits in place. So, for instance, sometimes we see people ramp up their benefits when they have kids or maybe they have some procedures that are coming up, and they kind of stick with that plan for a long time, and they don't ratchet it back down for the, you know, the less premium plans when they have lesser needs. And so that's some money that you could be saving. Uh, the other component is Fegley. You know, the life insurance, that's a really big area where we either see people overinsured or underinsured. And so going through an exercise of understanding what we would call with our clients the, uh, the life insurance gap, how much life insurance is actually appropriate for you, because it does get expensive over time. Tiago Glieger is a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com and click on the FedLife podcast. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways. And that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 
25 years I had compartmentalized a part of me and I had hidden things and I had not been my full self at work and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own uh, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first, and so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America... Well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well, they are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school. 
and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and, and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence, because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional, but also into leadership roles. I think so, because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust. And so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career? When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you- meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something something is timed in in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point. 
if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this that you just mentioned. You're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence. Because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Poland always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will... Talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.